Heavenly Father, we never tire of thanking you for Jesus. For his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Heavenly Father, if the only thing that we ever experienced as a result of that death and that resurrection is just simply forgiveness of sin and cleansing and having a right relationship with you, it would be worth it. But Lord, you have given us so much more. Lord, I think of what the apostle wrote. That if Jesus was willing to die for for us. How much more now that he has risen from the dead to give us eternal life, to give us exactly what we need in order to honor you and love you and please you and walk with you. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who is here this evening and their life is empty. Lord, I pray that you would fill it. That they're living a life of guilt and disobedience. Lord, I pray that they would experience forgiveness and a desire to turn from their sin and to turn to you. Lord, thank you that you've freed us, Lord, from sin because of the death of Jesus. And so we no longer have to live in it. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to pick up where we left off. I'm going to begin in about, I think, verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned. 
Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Remember that the book of Samuel has three principal characters, Saul, Samuel, and David. And we've already talked about how Saul becomes a type and a picture of the king after the flesh. How David, later on in the book of Samuel, will become the man after God's own heart. There is this contrast between the man of the flesh and the man of the spirit. It becomes a type and a picture, if you will, of the challenge that we as Christians have. Because there are forces that would seek to rule in your life. In this passage of Scripture, Saul is stripped of his crown and he's stripped of the throne by God. Yet Saul continues to rule in his own power and in his own strength. It becomes a perfect picture, if you will, of the Christian who is saved by grace through faith. You've been saved by Jesus, but yet for some Christians, they continue to live as if sin is king in their life and Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes about this challenge and he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So, Paul the Apostle brings to light the reality that there are forces at work that seek to rule quite apart from Jesus. And so, this particular passage illustrates God's divine hatred towards sin and His wrath and His judgment against sin. Now, let me just be clear about this. Sin is anything that falls short of the glory of God. Sin is anything that is inconsistent with the nature of God and the character of God. And sin isn't limited to the things that we do. Sin is also something that we fail to do. Clearly, the Bible is filled with commandments from the Lord and instructions from the, from the Lord. Sin is sin primarily because it is different from the holy nature of God and the character of God and the attributes of God and the, and the will and the plan of God. Sin, listen carefully, sin is always against God. Now you might be thinking, well, can't we sin against each other? Oh yes, we can sin against each other. But remember that part of the 
of the of the wickedness of sin when we sin against each other is because God created you and God created me so that we could experience friendship and fellowship with him and with each other. When you sin against your brother and when you sin against your sister, you are in effect thwarting the plan of God and the purpose of God for your life. The Bible teaches that we are under sin, it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and Romans chapter 11, verse 32. The Bible doesn't simply describe the things that we do as sin, but that we are sinners. We have a fallen nature, a sin nature. But when we come into a right relationship with God, we're saved by grace, through faith, through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Jesus Christ is the remedy for sin. He's the divine method of dealing with sin. And before the cross, it is said that the people in the Old Testament, as a part of the Old Covenant, they participated in atonement. A word which means to hide or to cover. But we learn from the New Testament that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't and wouldn't take away sin, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. When a sinner offered a sacrifice, it became an admission of guilt. When you offer the sacrifice, it's an admission of of guilt and the just penalty for sin is death. And the covering symbolized the future cleansing when Christ would fully and finally take away sin. And in Jesus, we're not only saved from the penalty of sin. We're not only saved from the guilt of sin, we're also saved from the power of sin. Christians still do have a disposition to sin, and they do sin. And the simple fact is declared in the Scripture, and it's a part of human experience. No wonder in 1 John, John wrote and he says, If you say that you have no sin, you're you're a liar. He doesn't say, well, you know, you've misspoken, or... You seem to be beating around the bush. No, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. We as Christians are not called to live in bondage to the law or or the legal requirements of the Mosaic system. We are delivered by God's grace in Christ from the burden of a covenant of works. We do not do good things in order to be accepted by God, but rather because we are accepted by God in Christ, we're free. To love Him and to love each other and to serve Him and to serve each other. In grace, we are treated not like we deserve, but rather God treats us with infinite mercy and boundless compassion. When God saves a sinner by grace, it's necessary that God deals with each and every sin. But you know what the good news of the gospel is? That God has dealt with each and every sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And in this Old Testament picture, we are going to have a vision, a glimpse into the heart of God and the attitude of God towards sin. That you have to deal with it mercilessly. Some of you might even think harshly. But I'm going to make a case 
that you're exactly right. Because Jesus deals with sin. God deals with sin. And God judges Jesus harshly. So that you don't have to be dealt with harshly. In verse 17 it says, So Samuel said, Now remember, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And didn't the Lord anoint you king over Israel? In verse 18, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. We rehash a little bit of the first part. Remember, he sent on a mission to destroy the Amalekites. Remember what I told you. The Amalekites were a perverse and wicked people that God had decided to judge and he orders Saul to be the instrument of that judgment to wipe them out completely, but he disobeys. And in verse 19 it says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Remember, the message of Samuel contained three different elements. Number one, Samuel reminds Saul of his former insignificance and the source of his high position. Verse 17, you became what you became because God allowed you to become what you've become. Saul owed everything. Everything to the Lord. And number two, Samuel sweeps away the refuge of lies, the cobweb of excuses, the paper-thin excuses which Saul tried to hide behind by reminding him, look, God made this crystal clear. This isn't something that we argue or debate about. God clearly communicated his desire and his intention. And then Saul, then Samuel directs Saul and holds up a statement like a flashing sword, like a piercing light, like an unmistakable rock. He asks the question that reverberates down through the generations. Why didn't you obey the Lord? Do you remember when you were a kid growing up? And your mom or your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, your aunt, your uncle would say to you, Honey, why did you do that? Now, there's two things that typically would happen to me when, when my mother would say, Do you know why did you do that? Number one, I knew exactly why I did it. Because I'm a selfish pig. A wicked, selfish kid who wants what he wants. And then every once in a while I would think, why did I do that? You know, when somebody asks you why and you don't really know the answer, it makes you feel kind of stupid, doesn't it? I remember the story of this mother who was chastising a little girl. She was four years old and she had a brother who was three years old. And she grabbed her brother and by the hair and started dragging him back and forth. And then he, she kicked him in the shins. And the mom said, why did you do that? And she said... Well, dragging him by the hair, I think the, the devil told me to do it, but kicking him in the shins, I think that was my idea. When it's rebellion and it's disobedience, it's kind of hard to judge exactly where the rebellion and the disobedience is coming from. But he does ask the question, why didn't you obey the Lord? 
And I think that the answer is very interesting and helpful for each and every one of us. Because when Samuel responds in verse 20, he says, And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. He's lying. He just comes right back squarely, completely, and specifically, and he lies to the prophet. But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Has he really? Did God ask him to radically, brutally, specifically, unmistakably wipe out the Amalekites? But he hasn't done it. He told him to destroy the flocks, the herds, the donkeys. That everyone, everyone had to die. And everything had to perish. He says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. Here's what we know. Not only did he bring back some of the bulls and the goats and the camels. Not only did he bring back the king, but also some of the Amalekites escaped. And by the way, so long as Agag, the king, was alive, there was hope in the heart of the Amalekites. They had a king that they could rally around, a leader that they could look to. He says, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Saul lies, and then he skillfully dodges the question. And please note what he doesn't do. He doesn't tremble at the word of the Lord. He doesn't say, this is what God has said, and I have, in disobedience and rebellion, refused to do what God has said. Saul denies any wrongdoing. He continues to sew his flimsy garment, his sinful spider web. But the garment isn't able to cover him. Saul's pleading a special circumstance, religious circumstances. He begs Samuel to see that sparing the best for God's sake and was for God's purposes, but he can escape the bruising, but not the crushing. We asked and we answered this question before, why does Saul spare Agag? It could very well be that he goes, I'm the king of Israel. And in, under similar circumstances, if, if an enemy came in and started wiping out all of the children of Israel, I hope that they would at least spare me. After all, I'm the king. The king deserves a little deferential treatment or dignity. That might be one possibility. Another possibility why Saul spares Agag is pride. He gets to march the vanquished king through the ranks. He gets to draw attention to his prowess and his daring and his military might and his circumstances. That's a possibility. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31 and verse 32, for if we would judge ourselves, we shouldn't be judged, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Oddly enough, Paul reminds the believers at Corinth that God waits, waits for us to examine our own heart and to examine our own circumstance and to examine where we're at. And we have this incredible opportunity to confess. In other words, part of the purpose of self-judgment is to bring 
into light those things that are not pleasing to God. Paul writes, if we will, but if we won't judge ourselves, well, the father has to judge us. And when the child is judged by the father, when the child is disciplined, when the child is chastened, it's not always pleasant. Because discipline has a purpose. And remember, remember what Paul writes, the discipline, the purpose is so that we won't be condemned with the world. Father's supposed to treat us differently because we are, in fact, sons and daughters. But make no mistake about it. Samuel is in rebellion. Saul is in rebellion. Saul wants what Saul wants. He wants a religious facade, but he doesn't want friendship and fellowship with God. He doesn't want to abandon sin. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 21, it says, But the people took of the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. Now he's remembered the commandment to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. No, look, there's a reason why we did this. It's... Uh, Religious reasons. We did this so that we could do religious things. He begins by blaming the people. The people took the plunder. That's the way often people who want to avoid dealing with their own sin. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my children's fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being the king. Now, you have to understand something. Rebellion is self-will. The very definition of rebellion is I won't. I can't. I must. It's when the voice whispers inside of your ear. You know, you have, a, you have the right to make a decision in this matter. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you've been bought with a price, even the precious blood of Jesus. You haven't been purchased with things that perish like silver and gold, but you've been bought with a price, even the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the king and Jesus is the master. Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? What was the purpose of the burnt offering and what was the purpose of the sacrifice? Remember that the burnt offering and the sacrifice was supposed to be an admission of guilt. And then a covering. Remember, we talked about the atonement. Is he for a moment suggesting that there shouldn't be any burnt offering and there shouldn't be any sacrifice? The answer is no. But reality says that when the burnt offering is made and the sacrifice is made, in the end, God is much more interested in you simply obeying what he's asked you to do. Samuel knows all too 
well the fallacy of believing that if you follow the general will of God, you can avoid the specifics. Look, you know, okay, look, I heard what you told me to do, Samuel. Go wipe out the Amalekites, and for the most part, they're gone. Yes, the people manipulated me into bringing back the choicest things, but they were for the purpose of religious reasons. Sometimes we're exactly that way, aren't we? We kid ourselves and we deceive ourselves. You know, Lord, for the most part, I'm doing good. I went to church on Sunday and Wednesday, Lord. Think about that for just a moment. Sunday and Wednesday. That's got to count for something. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad you're here on Sunday. And I am so stinking thrilled you're here on Wednesday. But the truth is that if you come on Sunday and you come on Wednesday and you read your Bible every day and you sing the songs at the top of your voice, but you still are living a life of disobedience because God has spoken to you. The Lord has spoken to you on specific issues in your life. And the Lord said, you know what? It's time for this to go. It's time for that to go. It's time for you to begin to listen, understand, and embrace the plan that I have for you. He knows, too, that God can't be placated with sacrifices when a person's heart is manifestly in rebellion against his will. Okay, I'll put extra money in the agape box. I'll help out a poor person. You know what? Thank God that you put money in the, in, in the agape box. And, and thank God that you're providing support and, and encouragement. But guess what? Your sacrifices won't pacify God if in the deepest part of your heart you're still living a life of rebellion and disobedience. Think about it for just a moment. What, what he's basically saying is, number one, Simple submission to the will of God is elevated above all religious activity. Loading the altar, lighting the candle, giving the gift, writing the checks. Religion, 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 religion will never, ever serve as a substitute for listening carefully. And then being willing to submit in the area of, of disobedience that God has asked you. Again, it isn't for the purpose of humiliating you. It's for the purpose of giving you an opportunity to walk in freedom and enjoy. And, and, and second, self-will sinks to the lowest depths. Because remember... Saul suggests that he's kept the rebellion and the disobedience for the purpose of actually honoring God. But guess what God he's honoring? It's a God of his own imagination. Is it, it isn't the true and the living God. You know, I told you last week that the Hebrew word 
for idolatry in verse 23 is emptiness. And that becomes the perfect word to describe idolatry because that's exactly what it is. Your fabrication and your creation of the false God in the end results in emptiness because whatever God of your imagination, whatever God you create, whatever God that is not the God of the Bible, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God who Jesus calls his father, it's not really God. And then the stern sentence of final disapproval, final rejection is given. It becomes a warning. What does the Lord want from us? Does he want more service or more sacrifice? No, no, no. The Lord Jesus is interested in the one sacrifice, the hardest sacrifice, the setting aside of your lordship. Every morning that you wake up, a decision is made. Jesus will be the king or you'll be the king or the queen, depending on your circumstance. You get to wake up and you get to make the choice. On Sundays, we're looking at John chapter 18. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11. And we saw the picture of Jesus' surrender. Remember, he goes to the garden and he's going to be arrested. But Jesus goes manifestly in control. He is in control because what he has decided to do is to fully and finally and totally embrace the mission and embrace the plan that God has for him. And sometimes when the Lord speaks to you and says, I need you to do this. And you go, but what about my job? Or what about my husband? What about my wife? What about my children? What about this? Or what about that? And the Lord's saying, I'm, I'm asking you to surrender. And don't for a moment suggest, don't even begin to think that I'm asking you to abandon your responsibilities to your husband, to your wife, to your children, to your job. I'm not saying don't pay your mortgage. I'm not saying obey in order to disobey, but what I am saying is that the Lord will speak to you and he will address you and he will begin to ask you about certain things. Faith and obedience are necessary parts of each other. There can be no obedience without faith and faith without obedience is dead. The Bible teaches that the believer's fallen nature has been judged by the crucifixion. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, that we died with Jesus and that we were buried with Jesus and that we are raised with Jesus. Paul kind of puts it in terms that I like to think of as the witness protection program. You and your wickedness and sin, God has decided to forgive. And he's placed you in the witness protection program. And he's given you a new identity. And your identity is in Jesus. When Jesus died, you died. And when Jesus was buried, you were buried. And when Jesus rose from the dead, you were given a new life in Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Sammy the Bull Gravano. He was a member of the John Gotti family. And he was arrested and indicted for 19 counts of murder. 19 counts of murder. 
That's pretty bad. And that's not even the worst things that he did. Now, you might think, oh, what could be worse than that? I can't even tell you. If I did, I would have to kill you. But he does all kinds of really wicked and evil things. And the government decides to give him a pardon if he will turn evidence against John Gotti's crime family. They are willing to give him a new identity and they're willing to place him in a new circumstance and they're willing to wipe out his whole life and give him a new life. And that's exactly what they did. They gave him a new identity in Phoenix, Arizona. And you know what's the very first thing that he did? He bought a great big Cadillac and on the license plate he had it say, Made Man. And then he started selling ecstasy out of his trunk. And he got caught. Because even though he was pardoned for his previous crimes, and even though he was given a new identity, he never fundamentally changed. He thought and acted and behaved like a gangster. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that when you identify with Jesus and when you were crucified with Jesus and when you were buried with Jesus and when you rose with Jesus that he's given you a new life and a new power and a new ability to love and to honor and to serve him and not be a slave to sin. It isn't you making the choice to be different in your mind or even in your behavior. It's you allowing the real Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, to become real in your life. In verse 24, it says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Look what he says, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Saul cites fear as the reason for his disobedience. Look, I have sinned. I did transgress the commandment of the Lord and your words because I was afraid. I was afraid that if I did what God wanted me to do, that I would suffer loss or I would suffer shame or I would suffer humiliation. But I want you to think about what is happening in the text. Does Saul fear God or does he fear human beings? What do you think the answer is? This is pretty simple. Does he fear God or does he fear man? I'm afraid of what they might think. You know, one of the ways that you know that you've made the transition from death to life and from darkness to light is when you wake up one morning and you go, I don't care what my wife or my husband or my boss thinks. I'll even get a little bit more difficult. I don't care what this wise person and that wise person thinks. I care about what God thinks. And I, I care about what God wants. Fear plagues us today. We're sometimes afraid... 
of what people will think or what people will do. We're afraid that if we, did, if we don't honor God, that we won't be able to achieve our goal. We won't be able to achieve our ambition. If somehow, if submitting to the will of God means that you don't get to achieve your goal or you don't get to achieve your ambition, it's time to revisit your goal and revisit your ambition that it's not a goal or an ambition that's consistent with the character of God or the will of God for your life. And I'm not picking on anyone in particular, so if this applies to you, don't go, how dare you pick on me? I'll give you an example. And I don't have anyone in mind, I promise you. Imagine you're in a relationship that you have no business being in. Because you really want to be married. And you're willing to sacrifice and you're willing to disobey and you're willing to do weird and wicked things because, and you're willing to compromise your deeply held convictions because you think that the most important thing is that, that you should be married. And i got to tell you something. It's not wrong for you to want to be married. But it is wrong for you to wickedly usurp the place of God in your life. Samuel 15.25 says, Now therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. Do you understand what's happening? Saul asked Samuel, please pardon my sin. Can, can Samuel forgive sin? Who can forgive sin? God. God can forgive sin. Can the pastor forgive sin? No. Can the priest forgive sin? No. Who can forgive sin? God can forgive sin. It's the Lord God. Because remember what I said to you earlier? When we sin, who do we sin against? Therefore, who is it necessary to seek forgiveness from? God. What is the mechanism that God has given to a lost and dying planet that's in rebellion and disobedience against God and that he is truly and willingly and wonderfully willing to forgive you in Christ Jesus? Well, you know what? I want to experience forgiveness, but I don't want Christ. I want to experience forgiveness, but I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to become a Jesus freak. And I don't want to have to go to church and read my Bible and eat little pieces of bread. I understand. Life has always been about two different kinds of people. Those who want to come to God on God's terms and those who don't want to come to God on God's terms. Here's God's terms. You can come to him in Christ, or you can come on your own terms. Here's what I guarantee you. You come to the Lord on God's terms in Christ, he will accept you and forgive you. You come to God on your terms, that's anything other than Christ, you will be rejected. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path. The hidden boundary between God's patience and God's wrath. And the gates of repentance close on Saul 
And he's stunned by the awful sentence of rejection. And he begins to grieve. And he's looking over this ledge, this precipice on which he stands. He fears. He turns. He confesses. But think about it. He never enters the gates that welcome him. His cry isn't the cry of a person who is repentant. He retreats into the miserable subterfuge of making the people his scapegoat. And that Samuel will somehow be the mechanism whereby he can escape. He doesn't want what God really wants, a broken and a contrite heart he won't despise. I know what you might be thinking. Oh, I feel sorry for him. Well, I do too. But sorrow isn't repentance. And in verse 26, it says, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Understand what is happening when Samuel says to Saul, I won't return with you because you've rejected the word of the the Lord. Remember, there is some... Think carefully for just a moment. Is it this specific sin that has created the mechanism... Whereby Samuel loses everything? No, i got to tell you. It isn't just this individual sin of rebellion and disobedience. It is a heart and an attitude of wickedness. He is soaked and drenched in his thinking and in his heart against God. The rejection begins when Saul rejects the word of the Lord. And the rejection continues when the Lord rejects Saul from being the king over Israel. And you can make no mistake about it. You can't reject the word of the Lord and then expect acceptance by the Lord. Well, look, I want to be accepted by God. But I don't want to obey what God says. Sorry. In verse 27, it says, And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Now, here's the picture. The picture is Saul. He falls to his knees. He reaches out. He grabs the edge of Samuel's robe. And Saul might... might, One of two things is happening. Saul is either grabbing Samuel by the robe, physically trying to detain the prophet by force. I want what I want, and you're not going to stop me. That could be one thing. It is true that in the ancient world, when a person knelt and they held the hem of the garment, it was a sign of submission and loyalty. Is there that possibility? Possibly. In verse 29 it says, And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he's not a man that he should relent. This is Samuel's way of saying. And by the way, the strength of Israel is unique in this specific passage and it appears only here in the text. But it's the idea that the strength of Israel is a name of God and an attribute of God and the character of God 
And just in case you live in a world where you believe God changes his mind, read and embrace what the scriptures teach. The Lord is not a man that he should relent. God is unchanging. The prophet calls him the strength of Israel. He will not change his mind. He isn't an exalted man. Sorry, Mormonism. God is not human with the faults and the failures and the flaws that is consistent with fallen human nature. God knows everything fully, completely, and perfectly. So three phases demand, the phrases demand our attention. Number one, the Lord tears the kingdom of Israel from you today. From the moment that this happens, it's all downhill for Saul. He ceases to be the king. He retains honor before the people. You can see that in verse 30. But in the sight of God, Saul is a ghost, a phantom, ruling by nothing but sheer personal willpower. Now think about this for a moment. Saul continues to rule based on his willpower. But I want you to think about this for a moment. That's exactly what he wanted all along. That's exactly what he wanted all along. I want the freedom to do what I want without the prohibitions and the restrictions of God. That becomes the picture of sin and rebellion. And it becomes the picture of me and of you. If we decide to live apart from what the Lord really wants for us. And he says, a neighbor of yours. We're introduced to that neighbor in the next few chapters. That neighbor is going to be David. And that neighbor is going to be the man after God's own heart. When you read about the exploits of David, you're going to be amazed. And you're going to be disgusted. Because he's going to remind you of you. Wow, I could do amazing things for God. Yeah. Wow, I could do some pretty disgusting things as well. David actually winds up doing some things that, at least on a superficial reading of the text, you might think, well, David did a lot of things that were worse than Saul. So why is Saul a man after the flesh? And why is a David the person after God's own heart? You know what the difference is? Saul's sin is exposed, but he refuses to repent and return to God. David's sin is exposed. And in humility and in brokenness, he avails himself of the mercy and the compassion and the forgiveness of God. What is the man? What is the woman after God's own heart? It's the person who's willing to admit their sin. And to walk away from their forgiveness. But think carefully. It isn't just a walking away from the wickedness. It's a walking to the hope and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the love that's found. And in verse 30, then he said. I have sinned. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people. And before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Just another quick note on that statement in verse 29, the strength of Israel. The expression means hope. The word, the strength of Israel in the Hebrew language 
means perpetuity. Do you know what that word means? It means lasts forever and ever. So the word was a Hebrew word that combined uh, an aspect of perpetuity and truth and glory and victory and trust and confidence. And also the strength of Israel won't lie, won't relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders. Now think again. Saul is more concerned about what the people think instead of what God thinks. Saul wants a good reputation. But he's not willing to pay the price for a good character. And in verse 31 it says, so, so Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, you understand what he's saying. There's not going to be any more killing, right? I mean, clearly all of that is pretty much over with. In verse 33, but Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. This is Samuel's rather colorful way and poetic way of saying, you're a dead man. Yeah, no matter how you add it up, that's the net result. You are a dead man. And Samuel not a king and not a soldier. Not a young man. Samuel hacks Agag in pieces. And the scene is brutal. As a matter of fact, if this were a made-for-TV movie, it would be rated R. Maybe even X. Because when you take a primitive sword and hack a man to pieces... There's no beautiful way to do it. I've told you that I have a privilege of working with law enforcement officials and the chief of police of a local law enforcement agency basically said to me one day, chaplain, he said, there's no beautiful way to hit a man with a stick. A police officer has three weapons in his arsenal, his mouth and his stick and his gun. And if a person won't submit to his mouth, then he has to take a stick in order to subdue this particular person. But think carefully, the stick is a merciful alternative to the third weapon that is in his arsenal. So, when I come upon people who say, that, that police officer beat me, I say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because there's a merciful alternative. But make no mistake about it. It is the perfect picture of what God requires. Because you're making a mistake if you miss the whole sentence. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces. Look what it says. Before the Lord. Do you understand what that means? He hacked Agag to pieces in complete humility and submission to the judgment of God because sin has to be dealt with brutally. 
This is a picture of God's attitude and heart towards sin. This is God's way of saying, I want you to deal mercilessly, brutally, fully, finally, unequivocally. If there is something that you're holding on to, you need to get rid of it. If there is a relationship that is wicked and is causing you to sin and disobey God, abandon it. If there's some drug or there's some issue, if there's some criminal activities that you're participating in, if you said, well, in order to do this, I've got to give up this and this and this, and I'm not quite ready. I'm not mentally, emotionally, physically. I'm not fit. I'm not ready to do it. And the Lord says you have to deal with it mercilessly. You have to abandon and reject your sin and you have to walk away from it in particular when the voice is whispering in your ear. How rude. How unkind. How could you be so rude and so unkind to that person? Think about the life that you've had and think about the investment that you've made and the Lord is saying to you, get rid of the sin. Walk away. And guess what? There's a reason why God is doing that. Because sin always brings forth death. Do you know what else sin does? It always blocks, hinders, and weakens your friendship and your fellowship and your relationship with the Lord and with each other. And there's nothing more important than your friendship with God. There's nothing more important than your ability to minister and to serve each other. There's nothing more important than that. And you might say, but I wanted to witness to them about Jesus. Guess what? That's not going to happen. You've already blown your witness. Well, does this mean Jesus doesn't love them? No, of course Jesus loves them. But Jesus is just going to use somebody else other than you to minister to them. You have to, you have to fully and finally and completely be willing to hack the king of sin in pieces before the Lord and you might be thinking that it's brutal. And in verse 34 it says, Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to the house at Gibeah of Saul. You know what happened that day? Saul lost his best friend. Remember what we saw in the earlier part of the chapter? Before Samuel had this confrontation with Saul, what does he do? He spends the night and he prays for Saul and he cries all night long. Saul lost his best friend. Saul lost the Lord's blessing. Saul lost the kingdom. And from now on, he would be on a dark and winding road that would end in him becoming a castaway. And Saul would eventually be slain by one of the Amalekites that he refused to destroy. You don't want to deal harshly, fully, completely with sin? Then 
make no mistake about it. It will come back to you. And it will germinate. And it will come to fruition. In verse 35 it says, And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. From this moment forward, Saul won't hear from God. He will want supernatural instruction, but he won't get it from God. And so he will seek it from the only other source of supernatural information, and that's Satan. Nevertheless, it says Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You know, verse 35 is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. One Bible writer said one of the characteristics of a true prophet is that he finds no joy in the word of judgment. It's true. Samuel wasn't happy about what he had to say for Saul. Look what it says. He mourned for Saul. And when it says the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel, does that mean that he made a mistake? Does that mean that if God had it to do all over again, he would have said, Dude, what was I thinking making Saul the king over Israel? What was I thinking? Why didn't I just make David the man after God's own heart? the king right from the start. i got to tell you something. You have a seriously flawed theology if you believe in a God who makes mistakes. Let me make this abundantly clear to you. Some of you might be under the impression that God made a mistake when he saved you. That he made a mistake in keeping you alive because why didn't he just save you and then kill you so that you could do not pass go, do not collect $200, go straight to heaven and you don't have to live a single day of rebellion and disobedience. Haven't you ever go, oh God, just kill me now. There's a reason why God's keeping you around. It isn't because he hates you, it's because he loves you. Because he has a plan and a purpose for you. He's molding you and shaping you and purifying you so that you can become the man and the woman after God's own heart. Saul is disobedient. Saul is untruthful. Saul is hypocritical. He's everything that we are in our flesh. Disobedient, untruthful, hypocritical. If we're going to be obedient, if we're going to be truthful, if we're going to be men and women of integrity, it's going to come from one source. It's because you're rightly related to God in the truth and you're rightly related to God in obedience and in full acceptance in Christ. I'm going to have the guys come forward and... and, uh, Isaac, come, and we're going to play some songs, and we're going to take communion. And what I want you to do before we partake is I want you to hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to participate 
together. But you know what? This is the perfect time. This is the perfect time to do what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Is there an issue in your life that needs to be dealt with brutally, straightforwardly? The wickedness and the sin has got to be dealt with. And you've got to walk away from it. Make no mistake about it. The moment that you hack a gag to pieces, there is a freedom that you experience. Your life isn't your own. Your life is hid with Christ. You have the freedom now to live your life in Christ. So let's pray, and we're going to sing, and then we're going to hand out the elements. Heavenly Father, I do pray for every man and every woman. Lord, sometimes judgment seems brutal. But Lord, we know that you have no toleration for sin. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you that sin has been fully and sin has been finally and sin has been permanently judged in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have freedom and hope and forgiveness and liberty and love in Christ. And Lord, I pray for that person who's been living a lie of hypocrisy, duplicity, insincerity. Lord, I pray that you would put all of the pressure of the Holy Spirit on that heart. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, that they would ask for forgiveness of your, from sin. Lord, knowing that it's you, the Lord, the living Lord who forgives sin, who pardons sinners, and that the scripture is still true, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. And so again, in humility and brokenness, we come to you. We ask that you would forgive us our sin. We ask, Lord, that in Christ we could experience wholeness and wellness hope and love, forgiveness and a future. In Jesus' name, amen.